Now hear God's holy word from Luke chapter 8, continuing our study in the gospel according to Luke. Hear God's holy word. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. And when a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away, because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us give thanks together. Good Father in heaven, we come to you hungry and thirsty for your word, and we ask your Holy Spirit to open up our ears uh, to cause us to hear and receive all of it. Overcome our defenses and the ways that we justify our own sins and our own uh, ways of lack of hearing your word. And help us to understand this parable today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. If I were to ask you to name the spiritual disciplines, what, what is important for a child of God to grow and to mature and to be sanctified, you would list things like worship and prayer and uh, fellowship, and you would uh, talk about study of God's word. You might talk about giving and service and other types of things like that. Let me submit one to you that might not be on your list of spiritual disciplines. One of the most helpful and and profound spiritual disciplines is gardening. That's one you need to add to your list. Now, certainly worship is paramount. Prayer, study of God's word, those are key. But you learn lessons in gardening that only gardening can teach you. You get to see up close, in person, the effects of the fall and the curse on creation. Getting food out of the ground is difficult to say the least. It is sweaty work and it abounds with frustrations and setbacks. The very ground is cursed against you. The ground is set against you. Your soil is commonly either too alkaline or too acidic uh, to do a good job of growing what you need to grow. It always sprouts weeds and grass, and I have a love-hate relationship with grass. Grass is in the category of water and fire, meaning it's nice over here, I don't want it over here. And grass is always where it isn't supposed to be, and it's not growing in the places where it is supposed to be. And so it too, the ground fights against us. The ground wants to, wants to produce weeds and things that don't bear fruit. And then on top of that, you've got insects and worms and vermin that attack your plants. You're always fighting off enemies from without and enemies from within, enemies from above and enemies from below that would steal the fruit of your labor. You need the help of other animal friends like bees to come help you pollinate your plants. 
The point is, it takes slow, arduous, faithful, careful work to get food out of the earth. You have to pay attention and you have to be patient. Fruit doesn't just appear overnight, but bad things can happen in an instant. Hail, deer, birds, and wipe away all the work that you have done. God has given us these amazing, wonderful, magical creatures called plants. This one can take sun and soil and water and make a tomato. I can't make a tomato, but that plant does. And this other one can take sun, water, and, and soil and make a squash. And it, it knows how to make a squash. And that one knows how to make a cucumber. And that one knows how to make a strawberry. How do they know what to make and how to make it? I don't know. But I do know that in order for you to get edible things out of the earth, you have to get down on your hands and knees. And by the sweat of your brow, you have to serve plants. You have to get down and you have to lovingly, carefully serve these things. You are the king of your garden. You are the queen of your garden. And you have to humble yourself as a servant to get food out of these plants. You have to get dirt under your fingernails. You have to dress and keep, protect your garden from all manner of enemies. That would destroy what you're trying to grow and build. See, these are, these are lessons you, you learn from gardening and only gardening can teach. By the way, I'm not anywhere near an expert gardener. I uh, have killed lots of plants this year and we've gotten three or four tomatoes that are about that big and that's it. So don't, I'm not an expert, but I'm, I'm learning the very difficult nature of how, um, how to get food out of the ground, the very difficult process. And these are some of the things that gardening teaches you. And while not all of us can eat 100% of what we grow ourselves, it's very good for us to have some firsthand knowledge of how God created the world, how God put man in a garden and gave him charge and dominion over that garden. And Adam's unfaithful behavior in that garden and his unfaithful behavior toward that garden killed the world. And then now when Jesus comes, uh, we see the, the second Adam coming as the faithful gardener. I always love when Mary Magdalene sees Jesus on the morning of his resurrection. What does she assume him to be? She assumes him to be the gardener, right? And well, Mary, you weren't wrong. <laughs> he is. He is the faithful gardener. He is the, he is the second faithful Adam. And so throughout the Bible, God leads heavily on the imagery of garden, seed, plant, flower, fruit, vineyard, field. These all communicate truth. We see it. We, we saw it this summer in Ruth, didn't we? How that field and the barley harvest played such an important role in that, in that uh, story. So far, we've seen this also in Luke's gospel. Jesus has come scattering seed, seed that takes root and produces fruit in some unexpected places, and also seed that has been sown that bears no fruit in other places. He goes to his hometown of Nazareth, and when he's there, he preaches Isaiah in the synagogue. He scatters seed, and the seed 
doesn't land in any uh, fertile soil. The seed is trampled underfoot, and they try to throw him off a cliff before the day is done. The lawyers and the Pharisees criticize and mock Jesus. He's not what they expected. He's not what they wanted. And by the way, neither is John the Baptist. Even though they had two polar opposite approaches, they're not happy with either. The seed is sown among the thorns, and it's choked. Then there's Simon last week. We saw him at the dinner table. And everything Jesus does and says is shocking and deplorable and breaks Simon's social conventions. Jesus is sowing seed, but there's nothing there to allow it to grow and mature and produce fruit. But on the other hand, some of the seed Jesus has scattered, much of the seed he has sown has borne fruit. There was a Roman centurion we saw who believed that Jesus had authority over sickness and death. There was Levi, the tax collector, who walked away from his corrupt business to follow Jesus. And again, last week, we saw the woman, a sinner, who experiences such love and forgiveness that she pours out extravagant, extravagant praise and thanks on the man who had delivered her. In each of these cases, you notice we see these little tiny embers of faith, these little, these little sparks that, that Jesus doesn't, he doesn't stamp out and say, well, that's not real faith. I mean, obviously this woman, she can't articulate, you know, any of the creeds. She probably hasn't memorized any of the Psalms. So I'm just going to, I'm going to squash that. Come back when you really believe. Jesus takes each of these little embers of faith and he, he blows on them. And he, he nurtures those embers and those sparks until they're a roaring fire. He doesn't stamp them out. And now here at the beginning of chapter 8, we read that there's quite a company of women with Jesus from all walks of life. In addition to the 12 that he has called, there are these other women whom Jesus has healed and delivered. One of the women, Luke tells us, is married to a man in Herod's administration. He's, he's Herod's steward, and his wife is following Jesus around the countryside. So she's a woman of means and connection and reputation, and she has joined herself to Jesus. These women, together with the 12 apostles, are serving Jesus and providing for him and supporting him. The point is the seed has been sown in all these areas so far in Luke's gospel. And it's bearing fruit in unexpected places. While the places you would expect to bear fruit are no, no fruit. They're, they're barren. There's nothing there. So then, uh, what we've seen also is that while Jesus has been continually scattering the seed of the gospel, he has preached liberally and openly. He's broadcast the words of life and the response has not been uniform. It has been unpredictable and it's been surprising. So now Jesus stops here in chapter 8 and he teaches the people who've committed to following him about the various responses that they'll continue to see every time the word of God is proclaimed. And there are some people there who are not committed to him. There is quite a multitude of others who are just watching in whom these things have not taken root. And so because of this, he does a lot of his teaching from now forward in Luke's gospel, he does a lot of teaching in the form of parable. And we'll read about his explanation for doing this in just a few minutes. But, but while a parable uses things and experiences that we can relate to in the form of a story, 
a parable is more than just a simple illustration intended to make things easier to understand. In fact, one of the purposes of a parable is to make things more difficult to understand, more complex. And we'll see Jesus uh, uh, say this in just a few minutes. But this parable, let's start at the beginning. The parable opens with a man in a field scattering seed. And immediately remember that, you know, we're talking about gardening, we're talking about planting seeds, so our mind goes back to the first gardener, Adam, who failed to tend to his patch of land. And not only that, he failed to extend the order of Eden beyond the garden sanctuary. He, he failed so early that he didn't have time to get started. But now in this parable, we have a different kind of gardener who comes scattering seed in a garden that has obviously been ignored for a while. What's in this garden? Rocks, thorns, nothing's taken care of. This, this garden has been untended for a long period of time. It is, it is borne the full weight of the curse and this garden needs a better gardener. So this gardener comes in this parable, he comes to restore the garden and he does it by scattering the seed liberally. He doesn't go to Walmart and get one little envelope, you know, of seeds, right? <laughs> Just those little few seeds in there and say, and then, and then take that seed and plant it in the most well-watered, full sun, uh, best fertilized patch of soil. That's not how he does his gardening. He takes lots of seed and he throws it everywhere. In fact, he has so much of it that it's no waste to toss it everywhere as he walks throughout the field. And doing it this way, he's not showing his lack of skill at being a gardener to do it this way. He's demonstrating how plentiful the seed is, how it never runs out, how happy he is to see fruit from wherever it lands on any part of his field. This is an important lesson here. I think there's a sentiment amongst among some Christians, that God sort of hates to be bothered when it comes to salvation. In fact, the reason that the doctrine of election exists, we might assume, is to remind us that God only wants to deal with a small handful of humans, right? Just a short list of people he really likes. Those who somehow find the poorly marked, badly lit backdoor alleyway entrance to the kingdom, you know, if we just happen to stumble upon it, that's who we want in the kingdom. And then, and then when you get to the door, they begrudgingly allow you in if you're on the guest list. That image and that perspective is not consistent with this parable. We serve a savior who liberally scatters his blessings everywhere on every place so that it gets on everybody. In the Gospels, we never see Jesus do just a little bit. That little, that little Walmart envelope of seeds is, is not a picture anywhere of what Jesus does. He, he doesn't do just a little dab anywhere. You know, uh, Jesus would never say, oh, I don't want to overdo it. Jesus always overdoes it. He always makes a big deal out of everything. You know, at the wedding, he doesn't make one little, you know, sample size uh, gallo wine, you know, those little things you get with a little screw top. He makes 180 gallons of wine. If you're at a party and there's 180 gallons of wine, you know it's a party. You know it's time to let loose. Jesus doesn't feed the people with a little bit of fish and a little biscuit. 
No, he gives them so much that they have to pick up the leftovers in baskets. They're full and there's so much left over. He doesn't bless his fishermen with just a few fish just to make it through the day. He gives them so much that it breaks the nets and they're not able to pull it up into the boat. He doesn't give the blind man a little bit of sight. Like, you know, I know you're blind. I know it would be a big blessing if you had just like 20, 80 in one eye, you know? And it's, oh, oh, thank you, Lord. I can see fuzzy things now. Thank you. When he heals, he heals all the way. This is the liberality of our Savior. And we have so far to go in comparison to him. We tend to be miserly and small-hearted and stingy. We did not learn this from Jesus. This is not the way he behaves in the Gospels. And so another layer to this parable is instruction on how the kingdom of God is established. The kingdom of God is not best illustrated by a big explosion. The, the kingdom of God is going to grow like a field. You sow the seed, lots of it is going to take root and provide you with a great harvest. Some of it isn't. But you are faithful. You do what you're called to do. But some of the things you try are not going to work out. Some of the words you say are going to fall on deaf ears. Some of your efforts are going to fail. And it doesn't mean that you were unfaithful. It doesn't mean that you were sinful in trying. It means there are other factors in play. And you are in control over all of them. See, if the words and works and deeds of Jesus fell on rocky soil and bore no fruit, why are we surprised when it happens to us? When we try things and they don't turn out the way we wanted them to turn out. You see, this is a picture of the kingdom. Gradual, slow growth and maturation and fruition. That's the image we get out of this, out of this parable. Well, Jesus told this parable... But the disciples want to know more. And so in verse 9, we pick it up where we left off. His disciples asked him saying, what does this parable mean? And he said, to you, it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest, it is given in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now, you and I might be taken aback by that statement. Wait a minute. Jesus said things in such a way so that some people might not understand or, or not hear. Didn't Jesus want everyone to understand what he was saying? Well, yes and no. Some of the things that Jesus said would have been like a match in a powder keg in the first century climate. And so he spoke things in symbolic fashion in part to buy some time. And those who were scoffing at him and those who were really not interested in what he had to say or what he had to bring, you know, they were always looking to twist his words so that they could bring him harm, so that they could do damage to him and his ministry. And eventually that's what, um, it, that's one of the things that leads to his crucifixion is that they hear something and they twist it. Remember when Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days, they didn't understand that he was talking about his body. They thought he was talking about the literal temple and that what he was saying was sacrilegious, that he was desecrating the temple with his words when he was talking about his body. So, so yes and no. Yes, the parables, he is speaking in such a way that those who are really listening are going to hear. Those who wish to do him harm are not going to understand what he's saying at all. And so Jesus quotes from Isaiah 6. Remember when the Lord commissions Isaiah, this is what God says to Isaiah. He says, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, 
but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate. When God speaks and the people don't listen, don't hear, don't receive, don't understand, it's an indication that God is judging them. When the prophet speaks and the people's ears are dull and their eyes are blind, it's an indication that their time is up and their destruction is at hand. And this is certainly true for that class of people who are stubbornly resisting what Jesus is bringing. We've already read about them. We've, we've studied them so far in Luke's gospel. So his disciples are listening. They do want to understand. They want to make sure that they're getting everything that he's teaching. So they ask him, uh, so what does this parable mean? And then he explains it in verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, and believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among the thorns are those, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity." But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience, with patience. When we read this through our systematic theological grid, our tendency is to try to introduce the, the concept of regeneration into this parable and try to figure out, okay, Jesus has given us four different kinds of people. Which one belongs to Jesus forever and ever and which one does not? The first problem we have on our hands when we try to do that is that we come with only two categories. We say, well, there are those who are regenerate, who have had a change in their life. The Holy Spirit has done something to them to resurrect them to life and they will be with the Lord Jesus forever and ever. And on the other hand, those there are those who are unregenerate and we have two categories, but this parable gives us four categories. We, we want the parable of the two soils and Jesus gives us the parable of the four soils. We, we want something very neat and tidy, but there's a greater complexity to the way that God views humanity than our binary categories. It's more complex than that. I think it's what this parable is telling us. One popular way of viewing this parable is that Jesus is talking about three different kinds of unbelief, three different kinds of unregenerate hearts, and then one regenerate heart, and that, and that everyone in that category can be identified absolutely as that kind of soil. But I'm not sure that that's the intent of the parable because from the beginning, this parable is for those who have ears to hear. Now, that's what he says. He who has ears, let him hear. So if, if there are warnings in here to receive the word and to allow the word to be fruitful and abundant in your life, this parable then is not given to those who can't or won't hear. And so I, it seems that this parable is a warning for all of us to receive the word and allow it to bear fruit abundantly. And that just because, because we've experienced growth at one point in time 
It doesn't mean that we're now forever free from the dangers of declining passions for the word. If this is to be read as a warning against having a stony heart or a distracted heart, then it it can't be read by those who will never hear it or read it or understand it. It is for us. Just as this parable was for the apostles, warning them to not be distracted, but to bear fruit abundantly as they receive and hear the word, then so this parable is for us, for the believers. Now, one way that I could try to prove this is to say that, well, on the day that they hear this parable, I think if we were there that day, we would put all of the apostles in the category of the good soil, right? We would say, yeah, they're all receiving and responding and hearing God's word and they're bearing fruit. They're the good soil. But what happens before Jesus' arrest? He tells them, he says, you're all going to stumble. You will all be scattered. You will all fall away. And Judas is going to end up in the category of men, uh, of plants choked by the, by the thorns. In fact, at different times, you can see all the apostles representing all the four soils. Let me give you one place. If, uh, if you have your Bible, this is fun. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Um, there's one place uh, where I think this is rather clear. Matthew chapter 16, verse, uh, verse 17. This is right after uh, Jesus has said, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah. He says, but who do you say I am? In verse 16 of Matthew 16, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, what soil category is Peter in? Obviously, he's the good soil, right? He's received the word. And Jesus says, blessed are you. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Peter is receiving the good seed of the word and is allowing it to grow and, and in the fertile soil of his heart, right? But uh, look, look down to verse 21. This is just right after that. From the time that Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day, Jesus explains his plan. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. I mean, literally, Two or three verses before this, Jesus is saying to Peter, blessed are you. And now he says, get behind me, Satan. Well, on the first day, he could be illustrated by the good soil. The next day, it's obvious that Satan is stealing away that seed. You see, um, so rather than running this parable through our regeneration filter, this is a warning for all of us all of the time to hear all of the time and to not take some kind of false confidence or presumption upon the fact that, well, we're the good soil. We always bear fruit. Nothing needs to be done to us. There needs to be no uh, tiller run through our hearts. There never needs to be any fertilizer. There never needs to be any sunshine or watering done. We just sit back and we just throw the seed and the seed hits us and it grows automatically and we bear good fruit. No, that is presumption. 
We can't assume that it's impossible for us to have difficulty in receiving or hearing the voice of God. In fact, this is a warning for us to always be on watch for things that would steal it away or burn it up or choke it. So that at the end of our lives, when we look back at our whole lives, we we might say, you know, like Peter and like others, there were times when my heart was hard. There were times where I wasn't listening. There were times where I was really foolish. There were times where I allowed the cares of the world to steal away the blessing and the good that, that the Lord was doing in my life. And I didn't appreciate it and I didn't, I didn't cultivate it. But, but the big picture is I, I, I was. I was the, the good soil. My soil was good. The seed that was planted in me bore lots of fruit throughout my life. Uh, see, I think the fact that we have four soils and not just two also points to the fact that the Holy Spirit is engaging every human heart. Every person made in his image is being interacted with and acted upon by God's Holy Spirit. He is working, he is convicting, he is revealing. It is not always going to bear fruit, the work of the Holy Spirit. But you see in these various stages, there, there is engagement. There is the seed being sown in every place. Well, let's uh, take a quick and close look uh, just to walk through these four uh, uh, quickly. You know this, in this parable, the seed is the word, the sower is the Lord, we are the soil. There are four different kinds of soils in the parables. Each soil represents a progressively more faithful way to respond to the seed. The first is sown and it never takes root. The second is sown, it starts, but it dies. The third starts, grows, and almost bears fruit, but is choked by the thorns. And the fourth uh, is allowed to grow fully and bears fruit. And so let's take each of those very quickly in turn. In the first example, Jesus says, the seed is scattered. But before it can take root, foot traffic tramples it. Birds come and devour it. And so this means that for some people, the word is spoken to them, but immediately before it can have any progress, it is stolen away. It's forgotten. It's neglected. It bounces right off of them. They're not powerless. They can resist the devil and he will flee as the scriptures promise, but they're weak. And so the seed doesn't ever have time to take root. The second soil, the seed uh, grows on shallow ground, on rocky soil. It springs up quickly, but as soon as the sun shines, it has no root and it withers, just like those who receive the word gladly, but who can't endure any trouble. They can't endure any persecution. They can't endure any, uh, any conflict. So just as the soil is shallow, so is their understanding and their faith shallow. The shallowness of the soil is the reason they spring up so quickly, but just as quickly as they flame up, they burn out. And the third is the seed that is sown among the thorns. The word is received. It produces a plant, but when Mark tells this uh, parable, he says it becomes unfruitful because the plant is choked by the cares of this world, by the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things distractions choke the word and the work of the Holy Spirit through the word of the Lord in your life. When there are things that we love more than Jesus, when there are things that we would rather submit to and pursue than God's word, 
when there are more important concerns than holiness, the word is choked and it becomes unfruitful. No fruit is brought to maturity. Then finally, there's the good soil, which yields a good crop. And, and again, I flash back to Mark's telling of the gospel. He adds a couple other details. Mark says, there's some that bear 30-fold fruit, some 60 and some 100-fold. Even among those who are faithful and accept it and are not distracted and are not easily swayed by opposition or trouble, there are still different degrees of maturity and different degrees of productivity. Some people absolutely amaze us in the way that they're able to hear and understand what God is saying, understanding his word, and they have wonderful insights, and they live as examples of what God teaches. And some of us are just doing a good job to keep up and not to fall too far behind. But, but no one knows the extent of the yield until the harvest. Some very quiet, faithful, persevering saints who have never been to seminary, who've never preached a sermon, who've never been on a missions trip, but who faithfully, quietly serve every day and pour themselves out for others. They, they will be among the 60 and the hundredfold on the day of the harvest. So this parable comes, I think, as a warning and an encouragement to all of us. When you hear the word, do not be hard-headed like the first soil. Listen and hold fast when you hear the word. Do not be easily impressionable and flighty and shallow like the second. Instead, be grounded. Desire to be deeply established. Do not be distracted like the third. Remember, nothing is more important than obedience to God. And this parable applies to us every single time that we're exposed to the word. We're going to pick up here next week, but I just want to read uh, what Jesus says next. He says, no one, when he's led a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is secret that it will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that it will not be known and come to light. Therefore, take heed how you hear. For whoever has to him more will be given, and whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken away from him. I want to isolate those words there. Take heed how you hear. That's a good question. How do you receive the word as it has been read to you, as it has been prayed, as it has been sung, as we have recited it back and forth together today, how do, you, how do you receive it today? Is Satan right now actively at work stealing away the word because you're not even interested? It's really just a big silly exercise to you. You're not interested in the thing that God has to say. In fact, you really uh, feel like you're wasting your time. It's just a bunch of hot air. Is that, is that what's happening right now? Or are you stirred like the second soil by something you heard, but because you're facing temptation or because you're harboring sin that you haven't repented of, or because, or because you're having trouble and you're, and you're doubting so many things that you lose the sense of the importance of what we're doing here today now? Or... Or like the third, are you having trouble hearing the word because your mind is entangled with thorns of greed or worry or covetousness? And again, this just seems like a waste of time because you have so many other things to think about, better things to do. Or like the fourth soil, are you hearing and receiving and rejoicing in the word and growing little by little? 
incrementally growing more glorious and more fruitful. Jesus says, take heed how you hear. Your listening must be active. It's, it's not easy to hear God's word. It's so easy to let your mind wander. It's so easy to let other things distract you. Listening is not a passive thing, but seek the voice of your Lord and King. Tune your heart to his voice and pray that the Holy Spirit will give you understanding and it will bear fruit in your life and for the kingdom. Well, I'll wrap it up with this thought. We might be like some of Jesus's contemporaries and Jesus tells us stories about plants and seeds and he talks about mustard seeds that grow into big trees and we say, okay, I, I, I get it, I understand it, but I want, I want to hear stories about things that are like explosions, things that just happen overnight, things that, that are, are, are quick and decisive. I want immediate change. That's the kind of stories I want. Jesus, why didn't you tell those parables? Well, we know that that kind of thing is almost never good. Like, like the seed that springs up and dies, it never lasts. It doesn't produce anything of value. But the kingdom that Jesus speaks of, like seeds that grow into trees and crops and fields. The kingdom that Jesus brings in grows in this slow, steady, progressive, pervasive manner before the harvest. Hearing this, then, I think is incredibly settling and satisfying and calming. So that when we go about our business, we don't expect overnight revolutions of our church. We don't expect overnight reformations of our culture, of our families, of ourselves, but we expect slow and steady reformation and transformation. I think, I think we tend to think, oh, if, if we could just get everybody to read this pamphlet, that would immediately reform the whole church all at once and everything would be fixed. If, if we would just all get this conference, if everybody could go to this conference or listen to these CDs, this sermon, this is it. If the whole church could just listen to this one thing, everything would change. Uh, y'all know that's not how it works. It's never worked that way. It is always slow and steady and incremental, almost imperceptible. Kind of like your children grow. You see your kids' faces every day, and they don't look like they changed a lot since Wednesday, unless they haven't taken a bath. Then you take a bath and you say, okay, well, now I can see you again. Your kids, you, they, don't, they don't look like they grow every day. But then you pull out the baby books and say, oh, where did my baby go? Where did that little child go? Where's my babies? And now look, you're human, you're big, and yeah, you used to be that. You're a person now. We, we look back and we say, oh, wow, look at how much you've, you've grown. But, but when we're in the middle of it, we see almost imperceptible, little bitty, tiny, tiny things, ways that they're changing. Um, that's, that's, that's how we need to view each other. That's how we need to view the church. That's how we need to view the kingdom and, and patiently recognize that, oh, yeah, we're growing but we're so close to the growth. We're so close to the center. We're so close to each other that sometimes it can be hard to see. But then think, think back five, 10, 15 years. Think back 200 years. Think back a thousand years. Have we grown? Has the church grown? Think back, think back two or three years. Have you grown? Yeah, yeah, I have, I have grown. See how much you've matured.
See, we need to be able to do that with each other. We need to be able to step back and say, the church is a garden. The kingdom is a garden. We're all in the midst of a very long process. So what are we going to do? We're going to scatter the seed liberally, just like the Savior. Scatter the seed. God provides the increase in slow, incremental, steady, pervasive ways. The kingdom grows. Let's give thanks for that. Father in heaven, we praise you for your goodness to us. We praise you for your kingdom. And we thank you that you have called us to be your people. We ask you to give us the kind of patience that is required to be faithful. Uh, the kind of, of patience that's required to see fruit all the way uh, to its, its fullness, to the harvest. And so, Father, as we ask for, uh, uh, for the grace of patience, we ask you to be patient with us. Hear our prayers. Receive our repentance. Uh, look upon our faithfulness and correct those things that, uh, that are, are still lacking. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.